So five years ago, when Jill and I stepped in to lead the church in transition here, I spoke on the story of Jesus when he turned up for a wedding at the outset of his ministry with his first five disciples in tow. The story has lived with me ever since as a story of Jesus intervening in a situation where something had gone wrong and transforming the outcome in quite an extraordinary way. The story really helped me at the time back then and I believed it helped us all as we addressed the situation in the church here at the time. And I think that story has something to say again in our current situation. So let's have a look at the story in John chapter 2, verse 1. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they've no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, just do whatever he says. Now there were five, or sorry, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it to him. And although the servants who had drawn the water knew where it had come from, the master of the feast who tasted the water that had now become wine, he had no idea where it had come from. So the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves good wine first. And when people have drunk freely of that, then they get out the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Well, I just want to pick up on a few points from the story that I think apply to us right now. And in the same way that the presence of Jesus made a difference in the outcome of the wedding, I pray that the presence of Jesus with us right now will make a difference in our situation for us individually and for us in Life Church Bath and in the city and in the nation beyond. So I want to talk about four things. Number one is the situation. Number two is what happened. Number three is the outcome. And number four is our response. So let's have a look at the situation. And the first thing I want to say is that there's something which was unexpected about it. It feels like Jesus wasn't expecting this even. And in some sense kept his distance from the reality of the organisational crisis in front of him. It was an awkward but actually relatively minor matter in, that, in the grand scheme of things. But he was keeping his distance, even from his mother who approached him. I don't really pretend to understand the theological implications of this bit of the story. After all, Jesus was fully God and fully man. But it feels like, humanly speaking, he was just holding back, look, this isn't my time, it's not what I'm here for, that kind of thing. And we're living in a situation which has intervened across our plans, across our well-being, across our jobs, across our finances, across our economy, and across our ability to travel, across our ability to work, across our ability to function. This isn't what I was expecting. Why have we run out of our ability to function right now? Come on, Jesus. We can't do this. Can you do something? 
His mum was pretty definite and confident in him, however, and tells the servants, just do what he says. So that's the first thing. There was a measure of unexpectedness about it. The second thing is, there's no blame. We don't know why they ran out of wine or who messed up. Was it the bridegroom? Was it the guests like Jesus turning up with some extra hangers on? The Bible doesn't say, and it doesn't actually affect the story. And that's just like the story of Jesus anyway. The gospel is good news and majors on salvation, getting safe, not the judgment as to how we got into the mess in the first place. For God loved the world in such a way that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the summary of the gospel in John 3.16. It's pretty well known even amongst those who don't believe. But in the very next verse, Jesus emphasizes that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, to point out what had gone wrong. He came to save it. The father sent the son because he wants us safe. So the third thing, which becomes apparent from the story, is that the, and the, from the situation, was that the miracle wasn't really that obvious. We read the gospel stories with the eyes of faith because the gospel writer invites us in to view the story where we know the outcome. And we see it as evidence of Jesus as the Son of God. And that's John's precise point in writing because for him, it revealed Jesus for who he really was and is but it would not have felt like that at the time. For most people at the wedding, it probably passed them by. But even though for those involved in the crisis over the wine, they probably were more relieved and puzzled than amazed at what happened. I say this because I know what it feels like when you're in the midst of God working. I felt the lack of resources around us when we bought this large city centre building I saw the gap in our finances and the uncertainty about the future. But afterwards, when we looked back, when we told the story of how we got into the building debt-free and how we got the work done, we could see the amazing God incidences that made it all work, that made it happen. And I can say the same now of the journey of the last five years. My heart at the time when I spoke on this subject in 2014 was, Lord, would you do it again? Let's see your extraordinary hand again in our circumstances. And I think we've, that's what we've seen over these last five years as we've connected with Dan and Fee in the States and reconnected with leaders and churches with the same heart together. And it gives me confidence again that we're gonna see his hand at work as we move forward in these coming weeks and months and the uncertainty around us. So that's the situation, but what happened? Well, the story hinges on Jesus telling the servants to fill the pots, to fill the jars. For the miracle to take place, the servants needed to respond to what Jesus told them to do. And for a miracle to take place, we need to respond to what Jesus tells us to do. It needs us to take action to do our part. The servants had to fill the pots, six large pots, each about 25 gallons or 115 litres each. That's a lot of water to fill. And I'm not sure whether they had anything other than their manual resources to be able to achieve it. But I love the fact that he took their efforts and their achievement 
He took that ordinary supply of water and he made it extraordinary. They were servants. It was hard work. And they might not have been best pleased to be doing it. Who was this guy anyway? A young upstart rabbi, it seemed, with a few young lads in tow. But he must have carried a sense of presence and authority. So as we face these unexpected circumstances, as we reflect on how God has led us over the years, and as we want God to move in us and through us, my prayer again is, please, Lord, take our ordinary and make it extraordinary. And what did the servants think when they drew the wine out of the pot? Who was the first to realise what had happened? I wonder whether one or two of them, after they realised what had happened, they might have sampled a bit. But there was plenty to go round. That's the point. Let's take a look at the outcome. The outcome is a miracle, an intervention. The blessing for the wedding was really disproportionately extravagant disproportionately abundant. It was hard work for, for people to fill the six pots to the brim. And if you like numbers, well then six times 115 litres is 700, around about 700 litres. And the servants felt the effort of all that water. But the guests enjoyed it all as wine, equivalent to about 920 bottles, 5,600 glasses of wine, and at our current rating, around about 10,000 units of alcohol. And at the Chief Medical Officer's guidelines for safe consumption of alcohol, at 14 units a week, that will take one person almost 12 years to drink. If you like numbers and you like wine, that's a lot of wine. If you don't like numbers and you don't drink wine, it's still a lot of wine. And I'll just take a little pastoral diversion here, a little pastoral aside that the Bible has positive views of alcohol consumed in moderation in the Old and New Testaments. Fermented drink was, after all, the safest way of, of taking in fluid, of drinking fluid. And it was, but it was also specific in its warnings against drunkenness and addiction. If you look at the end of Proverbs 3 for, uh, 23, for example, you get a really graphic and accurate description of the impact of drunkenness. And as Brits, we have a pretty close relationship with alcohol consumption. And in the current climate, after toilet rolls, pasta and tin foods, the alcohol aisles were the next aisles to empty. And in the church as a body of people, we're ambivalent about our relationship with alcohol. Some of us perhaps think it, it's, it's free. We, we're free to do whatever we want, which is true in Christ. Now, I enjoy a glass of, uh, of wine. I drink beer with friends and I occasionally enjoy a glass of whiskey. So I'm far from prudish on this. But my concern is not about drinking as such but it's about as followers of the Lord that we understand are informed about sensible practice and exercise our self-control. Understand what a unit of alcohol looks like. Don't assume that you do and manage your consumption wisely. Here endeth the pastoral diversion because actually the miracle is not about alcohol. In the end, it's about blessing and the blessing was only limited by the capacity that they had at the time to contain it. It was limited by the six large jars. 
the outcome was really extravagant and extraordinary. But I don't know, if there'd been seven pots, I think there would have been seven pots full to the brim with good wine. Not only was the supernatural miracle of Jesus extravagant, it was also better than anything that had gone before. The miracle of Jesus always beats our expectations and is better than what's already happened. Why? Because it's the evidence that God is with us. It's the extraordinary, alive in our ordinary, transforming our view, lifting our vision so that we can see into something of God's realm. We can see him at work. We can see the king in his kingdom. So what's our response then? Well, in 2 Peter 1 verse 8, Peter says, in effect, we can become more productive and fruitful in our knowledge of Jesus and gives us a list to show how. If we do these things, then we become effective, effective servants, ready to do what he says, so that we're able to fill that, that sense of, of, fill, of fulfill his instructions and fulfill the pots. And what's Peter's list? It's this. Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, moral excellence with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. So the starting point is our faith. Faith to see beyond the present circumstances and motivated by the evidence of the things we cannot see. We know from Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we need to read the word, speak the word and live the word. And to our faith in these days, we add moral excellence, which is otherwise translated in other versions as goodness or virtue. Moral excellence speaks of integrity, of doing the right thing, which society is talking quite a bit about in the face of the restrictions we face at the moment. Being kind to one another and looking out for one another. And to moral excellence, we add knowledge, where knowledge is as much an awareness and relationship with the Lord, not just head knowledge. In these days, it is our relationship with Jesus, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, which gives us the strength and confidence to stand. And to our knowledge and our relationship with him, we add self-control, restraining our interests and our appetites. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22. But I find it interesting that many of the fruits of the Holy Spirit reflect a measure of restraint anyway. Patience restrains our impulsiveness. Gentleness restrains our strength. And kindness restrains our selfishness and our self-interest. If there's one thing that the current circumstances have brought home to us, all, all of us, it's the opportunity to look and think beyond ourself, myself, my little world, to exercise self-control and self-restraint. And to self-control, we add patient endurance, otherwise translated steadfastness or perseverance, qualities that are being tested in each one of us in these days, and that we're able to stand and not give ground to fear or loss of hope. 
to patient endurance, we add godliness of being like God himself, taking on his values, reflecting his character, his voice and his hope. Hope that lifts our heads and hearts above the circumstances. And to godliness we add brotherly affection, the humanity of looking out for one another, of appreciating each other, encouraging each other, affirming each other, calling out the best in each other, not passing judgment or criticizing each other. And in these days, we're having to find new ways of being able to do that. When our normal, uh, our normal grid for doing this in relationship together is, is somehow removed one stage. So now's the time to look to emails and all our social media to keep and stay in touch with one another. Finally, to brotherly affection, we add love to express God's sacrificial heart for people around us. Jesus says, this is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. That's fully, ultimately, sacrificially laid down and given over to love. As Peter wrote this list, he prefaced it by, by his statement that his divine power, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life and living in the way Jesus wants us to. We've received this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his glory and his excellence. So for me, I'm saying my prayer is, Lord, please take me as I am. Take my ordinary and make it extraordinary. Take the person that I am as I seek to follow you with all your divine power giving us everything we need. Lord, would you take our water? Would you take our efforts, our resources, our serving and turn it into wine that transforms the atmosphere around us? Take our day-to-day -day actions as individuals and give them divine consequences as you transform our ordinary into your extraordinary. And all the more in these days of restrictions and uncertainty, may we be carriers of blessing and abundance in who we are in you. Will you take our ordinary corporate actions, our ordinary things that we try to do together still remotely, and make them extraordinary because of your presence and miraculous intervention. And now that we're meeting virtually rather than physically, we pray for extraordinary testimonies and transformations as people put their trust and their hope in you in these circumstances. So at the, at, just to summarise it and to, at the risk of repeating it, in these days we, may we be an ordinary people transformed by you into an extraordinary, extravagant blessing for life. In these days, in this time, in this city, in our towns, in our homes, in this region and beyond. So the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and wherever you are, in whatever you face, right now, in all the days ahead, the Lord bless you. Amen. Amen.